Ready, set, go! Registration is now open for the Middle States Commission on Higher Education 2023 Annual Conference. It's in Philadelphia, December 4th through 6th, 2023, setting the standard transformation through accreditation. You don't want to miss it. Register now at msche.org. Surprise! We're taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us for an incredible higher education marketing and enrollment management conference February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to EDUP on the EDUP Experience podcast where we make education your business. This is Dr. Joe Salustio. I am really happy about this uh, episode. I think you guys are going to get something out of it. And then you're going to go get the book that this episode will be based on because it's going to give you an education in higher ed that I don't think a lot of books give you. And I know that because I got a little bit of a sneak peek thanks to my, I call it my contact network that I have. And I'll bring in my guest co-host here in a second. But I do want to remind everyone, if you're listening to this podcast, we are going to be broadcasting live at the Middle States Commission on Higher Education in Philadelphia, December 4th through 6th. We're going to have a I'm going to have the mics. We're going to have the booth. Deborah Solmore from EdUp Legal will be joining me. Uh, so we'll have the whole attorney vibe going on there as my co-host. And then, of course, Elvin, the week before that, will be in Doha, Qatar, November 28th and 29th, broadcasting and recording live from the Qatari Convention Center, which is literally like nothing you have ever seen. I promise you. It is unbelievable. And then after that, we'll be at Insights EDU in where is it it's in phoenix arizona in february so anyway we're going to be on the road we're going to be on the road and i've got two gentlemen with me today that will also be on the road they'll be doing a little promoting if you will but let's get my guest co-host in first ladies and gentlemen here he is he's the one and only you heard his, you're going to know his voice as soon as you hear him here he is he's dr chuck ambrose came say his name right senior education consultant in hush blackwell chuck how are you I'm good, Joe, and it's good to be back on it up. So I, I've missed you, but I missed I, you too, man. You have yeah. had uh, the conversations that uh, everybody needs to listen to. So it's good to be back with you. I'm always glad to have you here, uh, particularly because you give you bring us a an angle. Um, you've had so many years of experience in higher ed. You bring a really necessary angle uh, because you've been in a multitude of uh, situations, if you will, turnarounds always looking for sustainability of institutions and so on and so forth. It's been a little bit of a wild ride, has it not? That's a very kind way of saying old, right? But <laughs> <laughs> I, I mentioned 25 years, Joe, as a CEO's 225 dog years for most everything else. So it's good and served with a lot of great leaders, a lot of great friends and colleagues and grateful to talk to one today. Let's bring him in right now, ladies and gentlemen, so we can get started and tell you what we're going to be talking about today. Here he is. It's Dr. Mike Nitzel. I had it right the first time I was going to say it. He's President Emeritus at Missouri State University. Mike, welcome to an EdUp microphone. Thank you very much, Joe. Good to be with you and always good to be with my friend, Chuck Ambrose. Before I tell you uh, what we're going to talk about today, I just I like to set the stage by making a mistake on introducing my guests' first names so that you know the rest of this episode, no matter what you do, it's going to be way better than what I have done. So we're setting the bar, right? Um, but these guys 
Chuck and Mike have written an incredible, and I mean it, and I don't say that because I read a lot of higher ed books and not all of them are incredible. They've written an incredible book called Colleges on the Brink, The Case for Financial Exigency, which I have a lot of trouble saying that word, so I'll probably mess it up. And we're going to talk about that a little bit too, because it's not often said. First of all, guys, uh, and Chuck, you're, this is going to be a funny space for you because you've written the book, you're a co-author, and you're going to be my co-host. We're going to go to you first, Mike, and, and say congratulations, because writing a book is not easy, by the way. I've written one. We're not going to talk about it today because we're here to talk about your book, but it is not easy to get all of those thoughts out and the many situations we deal with. No, thank Ins you. Yeah. What inspired you to sit down and do this? We got to go back over a year ago. I was, I, I write a uh, online column for Forbes on higher education. I've read it. And I have a lane in that column that focuses on financial aspects of higher education and particularly, frankly, financial problems faced by the, that have accelerated ever since the pandemic, obviously. And Chuck and I had been in fairly regular contact and he alerted me to the fact that, um, shortly after he took over as chancellor at Henderson State University, that they were facing a serious financial crisis. And I covered that for Forbes uh, online, wrote a couple of uh, articles about it. And out of that back and forth and that coverage, we began to discuss the possibility of doing something a little more, something that looked at the crisis with a, through a bigger lens and particularly financial exigency, which is, of course, what Chuck ended up declaring at Henderson State. So here's the specific. On November 3rd, it's just about a year ago, we met in Fort Smith, Arkansas. That's about midway between... The big city. Yeah, uh, between where I live in Tulsa and where Chuck lived at, uh, at that time on the campus and came to the decision to, to do a book. And we were able to get a publisher with uh, Roman Littlefield a short time after that, and then the next year spent our time arguing over drafts and uh, concepts and put it together. And it's coming out December 15th. December 15th. Congratulations to you, Mike, and to you, Chuck. How's it feel? You guys, how you feel, Chuck? You feel good? You feel relieved? Is it like a dissertation being done? I'll have to say this, Joe, because if you've had a head full of ideas for decades and lack the ability to really sit and put them down on paper, you need a partner. And not only a partner that could contribute equally to the substance, but I've just got to say it, it's been one of the most invigorating partnerships to bring ideas and words together and actually get them down on a piece of paper to take to press. I, I, as Mike knows, and we acknowledge, my wife's been after me for years to write the book, but I couldn't have done it without Mike Nitzel. It's funny because I've done so many of these podcasts and that's really what the, what my inspiration was to write my book. Cause I felt, here's how I felt. You're not the only one cursed with knowledge, right? <laughs> because I've just got, but you guys are the same way. You're cursed with this knowledge, right? You've done the job of president. You've seen, I went through what I loved about your book right from the beginning is the chapters, the way you've named the chapters. Cause I immediately, when I go through and I'm like, oh, I like this chapter and I read the numbers every college should know. And I, that's right where I, I was like, boom, let me go look at that right now to see if I know <laughs> what I should know. So colleges on the brink, financial exigency, the numbers every college should know, 
the journey through financial exigency, the freedom protection coefficient, which I want to talk about that, the resistance, year zero and beyond exigency. And as I was flipping around, I thought to myself, what exactly is financial exigency? I think I know what it is, or I thought I knew what it is. And then you had a um, paragraph in here that I highlighted that I'll find eventually that said, it may not be exactly what you think it is, Mike. I think that's a good spot for us to start to say, what is financial exigency? We hear it, but do we really understand it? It's a dreaded term, frankly, in higher ed. People hear it and they think the worst. And it is serious. It's a serious financial crisis. The term itself has been around for 100 years and has you know, gone through some changes in terms of its meaning. But basically what it means is that an institution's financial problems are so bad that its academic mission, its academic integrity is fundamentally compromised. And what sets financial exigency apart from a crisis or a budget shortfall or an emergency is that it's a condition where it's recognized that it can lead and it often does lead to the termination of tenured faculty. So that's why it's viewed with such trepidation, why it's feared. It's the third rail. You're going after tenure with financial exigency. And so ending faculty contracts, particularly those that hold tenure, is a, it's, that's a severe step to take. It reflects how bad the financial situation should be before an institution declares it. So that's a thumbnail summary of- Let what. me read this real fast. So financial exigency is not a familiar term to most individuals outside of higher education or even for many within it. So true, right? Those who do not those who do know about financial exigency, see, I told you, often have only a cursory understanding of what it means or involves. They simply know it's not good and that it should be avoided whenever possible, just like going out of business, sales and bankruptcy in the business world. And I think that's what we think about. Oh, we're going out of business. Financial and then a word after it, I don't really understand, makes me freak out, right? That we're going out of business. Isn't that the way people t tend to take something like this? It is. And what we try to point out in the book is that, in fact, the colleges and universities that have declared financial exigency are almost all still operating. They, they took a big step uh, at a time when it was necessary, and they've been able to restore themselves. They've been able to come forward with a size and, and an operating budget that they can afford that is sustainable. So exigency, in fact, does not mean that the institution ends. It's a step to avoid that. And the history shows that typically it's been successful. Now, Chuck, do you know anybody that's taken that big step? <laughs> yeah, was, as Mike so clearly articulates. And, and Joe, a lot of the guests in, in, in your book, right, thinking forward about leadership, really requires us to flip the model, right? Where we were reactive with exigency to say it was a crisis, it's worse than retrenchment, it's more than academic restructuring. If you look at places like Moody's and Fitch that, that really take a, a hard look at how we're actually doing, financial exigency is termed credit positive. 
you have a positive response from accreditors that you actually recognize the depth of your problems. But more importantly, and I think as the book chronicles, you have either waited too long or as the AUP defines it, or not willing to take the step that puts the survival of the institution at risk. So you, you might as well flip and invert uh, relevance to making it a tool for transformation uh, or right the, the defensive posture really is you're just cutting to to try to keep the doors open. So perspective in all of this, Joe, matters. And, and I think uh, that's what Mike and I try to encourage, uh, actually more hopeful than certainly pessimistic about the term and its use. I wonder if creditors look at, to your point, they look at financial ex- exigency and think, that's positive. Why is it positive? You have a leader in any other business context that's decided to take on its fixed cost structure. Something that comes along with tenure is you you are really easy. It's really easy to look at your payroll and know how much everything costs. And if you're not willing to, where does a business have most of its fixed costs? If you're a service business, it's in people. And if you have too many of those, it's very hard to flip the business in the right direction. But when you tackle faculty in higher ed, it can be a sacred cow kind of moment to where you're, especially as an administrator, and you guys write about it in here, about administrators and the way administrators can be perceived as out of touch, not caring about the academic infrastructure. The fact of the matter is you have to, at some point, take on your fixed costs. Mike? Yeah, you're exactly right. And just about every college and university, regardless of whether it's a private institution or public institution, over two thirds of its operating expenses are in personnel, in salaries and benefits. And the vast majority of that is in faculty personnel. And so when you talk about an institution that's millions of dollars in the hole and the hole is only getting deeper, it is very difficult to look at a way to solve that without looking at your personnel costs and inevitably at your faculty costs. Exigency, however, is different than what we've seen a lot of institutions do recently, which is to, in fact, fire a lot of faculty and end a lot of academic programs without a process in place that requires the involvement of the faculty in it. And that's what exigency does. So it's I think about exigency, particularly having watched Chuck take Henderson State through it, but also as we learned about uh, other uh, examples of it, it's a double-edged sword. It's very complicated and messy and emotional and traumatic to go through it. Much easier to just say, we can't keep going like this. We're going to end some academic programs and lop off some faculty and staff along with it. But unless you go through the exigency process, you don't really educate your campus about what the financial situation actually is. And that gets to the chapter that you referred to is what's the numbers every college ought to know. And it's how do we spend money? How much do our degree programs cost? Uh, Unless you really know that, you tend to just stay focused on a budget. A budget is just a plan. A budget isn't money. A budget isn't cash. And so that's the kind of focus we try to help people develop throughout the book. I want to read this bit, Chuck, and I'll, and then you could take over. M- many, to your point on the numbers, because that's the I was I went right to this. Many colleges never ask these questions or face their answers head on. Some may not want to know the answers 
They avoid the hard truths even as they accumulate. Presidents may not share financial data sufficiently with their boards, may not fully understand what the numbers mean. Boards and presidents may not share the data or educate their campus community about the significance of the numbers. A lot of problems in that, right? So it's true, but to get numbers that everybody understands, it takes an education. And at any point, it can be disrupted. Yeah, right? ab absolutely. Campuses are very good at pushing back uh, on these numbers and what they mean. They have a whole set of, of go-to narratives that they can generate that counter the need for a, a real serious financial reckoning. Chuck? And, and Joe, I'd put a place card right there because as you and Mike were talking with most of your spend and your resources being in people, it, it's easy to say, right, that we push back on numbers, we don't provide transparency, but in a people business where people depend on their incomes, the we still have some salary and equity across jobs and classifications, and regardless, whether you're in the for-profit, not-for-profit sector, uh, making decisions that have such a hard impact on people is never easy. So I, I just, it's easy to think systemically or structurally about the way colleges are organized, but at the core, there's hard decisions that affect individuals, right, that, that are there. And uh, so that's, hopefully we touch on some of the human aspects beyond empathy for leaders who, again, not only the leaders who make decisions, but the impact that people, the decisions affect. Mike, we have some really interesting people that we talked to in the book. Some of them we worked for, some of them we worked every day in service to students, but can you mention just some of the voices that we include with, within the book? Yeah. We, two, pe two people that are interviewed and featured in the book are folks that a lot of higher ed individuals will know. One is former Missouri Governor Jay Nixon, and the other is former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Nixon is an interesting individual for us, Chuck, because you and I were both college presidents when he was governor of Missouri. And when I retired, from Missouri State in 2010, he hired me to come into his administration, which I did at the near the end of his second term or first term and throughout all of his second term. And I became his senior policy advisor focused on higher ed. We did a lot of interesting things in Missouri as a result of that. And I was able to take advantage of the relationship I had with you guys and, and women who were leading the Missouri's public institutions at the time, both the four-year and the two years, to do some really good stuff. And so we asked Nixon about his perspective on higher education, particularly on presidents and chancellors, what he liked that they did and some of the things he didn't like. And then we also have a good interview with Asa Hutchinson, who's now running for the Republican nomination for president. He was your governor when Henderson State went through exigency, and he helped you a lot. Financially, he came forward with some money that you needed to hire an outside consultant, but he also supported the governance move that was important to Henderson State, which was to come in under the Arkansas State University system's umbrella. So we asked uh, Hutchinson about his on higher ed as well. I think those two interviews are um, 
parts of the book that I like a lot to to have those governors speak as frankly as they did about higher ed and what they wanted to accomplish with it. Do you want me to go into the students that we about the students that we interview or let's yeah let's and, and Joe we, we do have two rock stars that that are in the book and they're actually the best example of how students can lead the revolution but they also are students that brought Mike and I together from a policy to a practice standpoint in Missouri to to create something that is in its eleventh year and pretty extraordinary but. Yeah, Mike, I think uh, Quinn and and certainly the, the voices are, are ones that you ought to highlight, right? So these are two students at the University of Central Missouri when Chuck was president, and they are graduates of the Missouri Innovation Campus, which was an early college program that uh, Chuck put together at UCM, begins in high school, students develop uh, internships, paid internships with companies in the Kansas City area. They start to work on their degree while they're still juniors and seniors in high school through uh, a cooperative arrangement with community colleges in the area. And they can graduate in three years. They can have their baccalaureate degree completed in three years, no debt, generally lined up with an excellent job at one of the companies that they interned with. Amazing. And we were able in the Nixon administration to throw some support to this. And it got a a great deal of attention at the time. President Obama came to visit it and pointed to it as one of the examples uh, that he was most impressed with in terms of how to prepare the workforce and how to complete college in a very affordable way. So we talked talked to those two students uh, about their experiences at the Missouri Innovation Campus and their insights were extremely valuable about what it meant to combine the practical aspects of education that they got in their internships with the formal conceptual work they did at uh, their community college and and then at UCM. And they're both very successful now, working exactly in the industries that their degree programs prepared them for. You hear a lot about how degrees don't prepare students for jobs. These two students put a lie to that. Real quickly, they're doing exactly what they were educated to do. Should you register for the Middle States Commission on Higher Education annual conference this December 4th through 6th in Philadelphia? 100%. I agree, because the title of the conference is called Setting the Standard, Transformation Through Accreditation. There is no time like the present to explore opportunities in higher education and the future for our students and our business model. Get out and network with your peers this December 4th through 6th at the Middle States Commission on Higher Education annual conference. Attention. Are you ready to elevate your institution's marketing and enrollment strategies? Join the Edup Experience podcast at the Insights EDU conference, February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't miss out on this opportunity to hear from engaging speakers from industry leading companies like Google, LinkedIn, Adobe, and higher ed leaders. Learn the latest marketing and enrollment strategies to grow your programs. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Attention. Just to go, go if you don't mind, I'm going to just take a step back to the tactical, because the, the outcomes uh, when you declare financial exigency, and Chuck, I want to have you talk about your experiences a little bit, what went into the book, but I do want to come back to budgeting a little bit. And I, as I was going through the book, and you started talking, Mike, 
And I highlighted this and I'd like to, to bring something up. So the book says, what's important to remember for our purposes is that a budget is a statement of policy or, or strategic priorities translated into the dollars those priorities are expected to cost. A budget is not the same as cash, a mistake that faculty and staff and sometimes presidents forget. Focus only on the budget and you may never know an institution's actual cash position or how money flows throughout a fiscal year. Just because an expense is listed in a budget does not mean that an institution has the necessary funds to pay for it. A fact that we will often repeat throughout this book. Boom. Right? Isn't that one of the mo that's one of the moments as I was reading and go, yes, exactly right. You have to fund these things that you put into a budget. And if you don't know how to do that, certainly you're gonna either going to take out loans or you're going to not pay for it. And then your strategic plan or your budget goes away and you're not hitting numbers. Why are budgets so hard to understand? That's to both of you guys. Why do you think leaders are struggling with budgeting? Yeah, Mike, go ahead. I think there are a number of aspects to that, Joe. Um, first of all, to be frank, most of us came to the, our presidencies not being financial experts. We were academics. Um, now that's not true for everybody, but I'll talk for myself. I was trained as a clinical psychologist. I didn't know much about budgets. Um, I, I didn't know uh, a lot about financial statements. And so you start the job often not on very sure footing with how much you know about higher ed financing. And then second, for some presidents, there is the temptation to keep it pretty opaque mm. uh, and be pretty guarded about their financial situation. And their boards don't discourage that. So I do think there's some built-in limitations, if you will, in leadership sometimes about budgeting. But there also is a tendency we to rely on our past where if you went over the budget, you just dipped into the reserves. Or you, if you're a public institution, you ask for a little more money in the state appropriation next year to make up for it. There were generally ways to bail out institutions that were not careful, sufficiently careful about their finances. One of the great consequences of the pandemic was those bailout all ran out. Now, we did have a big bailout with the higher education relief funding. And we talk about this in the book as something that kept a lot of institutions afloat during a rough time, but it's gone. That money's gone now. And it may have lulled them into a false sense of security about their financial situation. Um, but basically, I don't think institutions going forward can expect too many soft landings now financially, either through enrollment growth, that's a pipe dream for most universities, through big donors, they don't give to universities because you're in financial trouble. Through major bumps in state appropriations, not probable. And with the current federal climate, you're not going to see infusions of money for institutions' operations. We've had to get more serious about budgets than we have typically been in the past. That's an initial take on it. I know Chuck has some good perspectives on this, too. So, Joe, you and Mike have, have just set the stage for a good soapbox because Joe, I know what you do in your, your day job, right? But Mike ran the litany of, of kind of lifelines that we once relied on, but probably the most problematic, right? 
is we just simply increased our tuition. Yeah. And with that increase in tuition, when, and unfortunately, I, I did say this back in the private sector over almost three decades ago, when publics have to start discounting tuition to yield students, the acceleration of margins for privates who are already in the spiral, but on a cost basis, right, would be a multiplier for publics. You juxtapose that budgeting culture uh, and values up against how you actually generate revenue, uh, and it takes opaqueness and throws a veil over the whole enterprise. And that's really the inflection point we've crossed, right? Because you just simply can't charge enough and expect enough for a student to actually pay to meet the demands that inflation, personnel cost, contracting, compliance... Uh, connectedness supports now, especially with the COVID lags we're seeing in learning and development, there's just no way, right, to expand margins. But worst of all, it's that culture, right? If it's in my budget, uh, it must be cash. If it's in my budget, I better spend it before the end of the fiscal year, realizing that you're just accelerating, right, the narrowing of resources that you actually have available. And... Uh, when you say reserves or savings, it's no different than, than how we are at home. You dip into your savings enough and you're not bringing enough income home. Uh, it's the same consequence. Yeah. You went into the overdraft. That's yeah. the overdraft charges. You got to pay or your credit back. card, right? Your debt and then debt service. And unfortunately, and I, I, I really feel this almost every day. Henderson became somewhat of the poster child of many of those factors coming together all at one place at one time. And Joe, I think we've talked about that in a prior uh, conversation. I think what Mike has really contributed to the book is that broader perspective of both optimism and realism, right, that we need to assert uh, every day. The one thing I would underline to this conversation about budgets is, and I now have an opportunity to encourage boards and leaders, you've got to put the operating integrity of the institution, how you're operating within your own means at the highest priority. If you don't, these other factors, right, will just uh, literally eat you while you, you move down the road. That's, I think Mike and I both, and Mike, you may want to speak to this. We feel a real urgency to get this book out because this is not a it's not been a great semester. It's not a good academic year. And the time is right now for this kind of uh, information to be shared. Yeah, I, I think, Joe, what I would point to is that when we started to see a lot of financial problems in higher ed in these last two or three years begin to mount, the temptation was to say they were limited largely to community colleges, regional public universities, and non-selective private colleges. That's where the problems were, that your flagships and your elite institutions, your Ivy Leagues and your Ivy League Plus uh, schools, they were all doing fine. What we have seen this past year, frankly, even though we were writing a book on financial crises in higher ed, surprised, I think, both of us to see the deficits running at Big Ten institutions like we have seen. Rutgers. West uh, Virginia was like, the, West University Virginia was that trigger. University yeah. of Nebraska. Yeah. Uh, Penn State. Arizona. Uh, 
<laughs> just, just this week, Arizona, you're right. Certainly the West Virginia crisis was one that captured a lot of attention, not just in higher ed circles, but in the public in general, because of the emotional reaction to what uh, was done there. Miami University in Ohio, a, a highly regarded public institution. DePaul, your biggest Catholic university, $56 million deficit. So while the um, initial notion of this was it's these financial problems are hitting colleges that have been struggling for some time, it's grown bigger than that now. You can't look at AAU University saying we're going to have to do some of the things we're going to have to do now to meet our get our budgets in line and not recognize that these financial headwinds have become much broader than just the ones that were blowing on the little colleges um, in the years right after the pandemic. Financial exigency, oh boy, you guys, you know what? I just cannot get that word out of my mouth. Financial exigency is the, is the button that you push. I want to say it faster, but it doesn't come out that way. It's the button you push when you as a leader realize, and you guys correct me, when you realize you need to do something to change the business model to be more sustainable for the future. Leading up to that moment, you have higher ed's inability or unwillingness to really change. And you guys talk about change a little bit in your book, uh, not a little bit, a lot, because the entire point is about change. The assimilation culture, stifle innovation, make you go through 57 committees of getting the idea out. I'm against all of these things. Or what about me? And is this book as much about, because I, I took away, it's a mu as much about create the change you need, do it. Here's what happens when you get to this point if you can't get there. How important is just change management in general for leaders to know about? Uh, let, let me step back up just one minute, Joe, on the question and say that I think it's important to recognize that a lot of presidents and chancellors are really very good at managing scarcity. And they have kept their universities and colleges out of deep holes. They've done things that at the moment weren't popular. They took heat for it. Uh, they were criticized on campus and by alumni for it. But they did take steps along the way that avoided uh, much more serious problems. So I think it's important to recognize that a lot of institutional leadership is pretty adept at managing financial crises. Um, but there are also a significant number where the, the typical maneuvers just aren't sufficient anymore. You've got to do something bigger. And, and that's where the resistance does tend to get mobilized, where it becomes very hard to change. And that's why exigency, again, I say is double-edged, because it brings in the resistance at the same time you're embarking on a change. But unless you do that, you're going to, I think, run into some of the fallout that we saw, for example, with West Virginia University, which made a point of saying we're not declaring financial exigency, but laid off faculty anyway. That doesn't go over well in the culture of higher education. And I can understand why faculty would be distraught about that and be very upset. So managing change is critical. It's hard to do. You're right. A college isn't just one institution. It's a lot of them. 
its departments, its programs, its student service offices, and they tend to see their mission often as their specific mission, not necessarily the bigger mission of the institution. Getting those folks to a point of some kind of consensus on taking a, a severe axe to the budget is a very difficult process. Joe, and as Mike says that, I've always had a fundamental premise as a leader that people want to change. When you declare a financial exigency and think about restructuring, it's amazing the number of people that come in and say, I thought we've always should have done this, or we maybe should have worked together and collaborated, gone interdisciplinary, gone across major. These are the, So the ideas, right, just start flowing about what you could do or what we haven't done. Again, we're not very adept at, at teaching people, right, change management. Mike and I were actually brought together, and I have stuck through this. He's not going to remember it, but we were on the first Missouri team for the complete college. Uh, as one of the states uh, jumping in, we were midstream, right, for states that were engaged. One of the keynotes, Joe, was the Heath brothers that wrote Switch. And I, I now still can commend that to, to leaders uh, every time I, I talk to them to say, and exigency is a switch strategy, right? So if, if you align data, right, data is meant to inform and hit the right side of the brain, right? Just to, And then the, the thought of college closure, imminent survival, the things that you have to do, you, you don't declare exigency on a campus that doesn't already know hard decisions are required to make it through. So the emotional side of change management don't wait till there's a crisis, right? Create the why around the possibilities, the future, the students that you can serve. I mean, that, so if you can create the emotive response for change coupled with good data informed decisions, uh, the more that you inform and educate and engage the community, the more powerful the change. Unfortunately, exigency just draws you in, right? Like a, a tornado, right? It's all on. And I think, Mike, wouldn't you agree that we believe that every school is on the continuum? They're having to think differently about how they allocate resources. And there's relevance between these strategies and some of the key learnings that we've shared that, that really relate to, as you've said, almost every type of institution. Yeah, there's a, hundreds of institutions where some belt tightening is going to be sufficient for them going forward. Then there's a category that we talk about where belt tightening is not going to be enough. They're going to have to do more than that to right the ship. They're going to have to look at eliminating probably some programs. They might be able to do it more slowly than you would in an exigency circumstance through retirements and uh, just the, the uh, non-replacement of positions. But then there's the group that we focus on in the book that we call Colleges on the Brink. They've got often huge debt loads. you had that at Henderson State where your debt service was a constant drain that you had to uh, address. They've made some perhaps poorly considered capital expenditures that they hoped would help attract more students. But in fact, unlike Iowa, as we say, they build it, but they didn't come. And their budgets have been in the red so long that the normal cost containment just isn't going to work. They're going to have to go to something more severe, which is something like exigency or what we call exigency light process. You have a graphic in here that I really liked. When people go out and buy this book, which I know they will, it's like a continuum of cuts. 
showing you like start with this and you're going to eventually get to this really hard thing you have to cut where are you on this where are you and i and i literally started going oh yeah i've been here oh yeah i've been here and you think about the circumstances that go around those moments it was a really good graphic to make you think about what comes next and what came before because people remember what comes before and they don't know what comes after necessarily but they remember what's come before and they will hold you to that you have so many eyes on you as a college president, the decisions you make. There's never a decision that comes up. It's, you pick the best of the worst decisions, right? The, of the bad decisions, because there isn't a good one all the time. So I like that graphic. I just putting out that out there, but in the time we have left, I want to talk about your coefficient, the freedom protection. Did I have that right? Or I have it backwards? Yeah. Freedom protection coefficient. What is this and why should I care and pick up this book to find out what that is? The freedom protection coefficient, Chuck Ambrose gets credit for coining that term. I, I had the same question you did, Joe. What is this? So it's going to be like an R next to that soon, right? All right. Yeah, it should be trademarked. It's really just a shorthand way of describing how university leadership, presidents and chancellors, need the freedom to be bold with what they do as leaders. And then the second part of the equation is they need protection by their bosses when they do it mm -hmm. against what often i wouldn't quite say inevitably but often will be resistance so we talk a lot about the bosses that universities have and the need for those bosses to back up presidents when they make tough decisions we talk about boards we talk about governors that's the chapter where we bring in both uh, Jay Nixon and Asa Hutchinson. And, and we talk some about legislatures uh, and how policymakers uh, also need to be willing to back up presidents when they do the, the, the tough things. So the freedom protection coefficients, an Ambrose term for the balance you want between a bold leader and the uh, people who stand behind him. All right, Ambrose, what you got? What, what's this about? And I tell you, again, beautiful partnership with a great co-author. I, I actually was pushing for that to be the title of the book. And Mike was like, nobody's really going to know what you're talking about. I'm going to go with um, Mike on, I'm going to go with Mike on this one. <laughs> All right, Joe, Pat, certainly ganging up on me, but I, 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 it's not a reckless term, right? Because leaders need to, and I think the best way to term it, right, is to think future focused about shared governance. There's been a lot written about shared responsibility. And if we don't create, right, that sense of shared accountability, and again, data informed decisions help to create that. If we don't think about the shared responsibility that each individual, and I really truly each individual shares in outcomes for students, uh, value proposition for students, um, we're, we're not going to get there from here, but especially with colleges on the brink and making the hard decisions, there's no question. Uh, I, I've shared in many different ways that as a college president, I never imagined the levels of decisions I was required to make at Henderson in the November, December timeframe of 21 and the last five and a half months of the fiscal year in, in early 22 and if I didn't have a president of a system and a university system board behind me to 
basically. And one of the reasons the the relationship was so powerful with Governor Hutchison, right? Because he he was willing to stand up and say, you need to do what it takes to save an institution that's so critical to the region, so critical to the state. And I, and that freedom protection extends to your responsibility to those you serve, right? And especially the students, because there's no heavier weight through an exigency to think we are definitely shrinking. We're definitely compressing. We're becoming something different. While at the same time, you, you've got a responsibility to those students for the outcomes that the college uh, promise really uh, represents. It's an important chapter. I did experience a no confidence vote by the executive committee of the faculty Senate. It wasn't it was in the week of the decision. It was in the last week of the semester. It was a really only way at that point that faculty had to express themselves. So I understood it. But if you've if you've ever experienced one, you, you've got to have something greater than you, right, to say, let let's you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. There's as much an emotional context to freedom protection uh, as there is a structural or governance one. Love it. What else do you guys want to say about this book? Open mic. You've got yeah. our listeners. You're going to be have a couple thousand people listen to this. What do you want to tell them about your book and why we should go buy it? There's one other feature of it I think that's really important, and that is we have two chapters that talk about how colleges can become better after they've gone through financial exigency. So there is a resurrection chapter here about how institutions can rebuild and after they've gone through a financial resetting and be stronger in terms of how they serve their students in terms year of Year zero, that's year zero. Year zero is the first year and then a longer term building of the college after that in terms of how you become better can again succeed in attracting students, educating them well, getting them across the finish line and having them be well prepared for jobs. So I, I would want to emphasize that uh, the last two chapters uh, are cast, I think, in a pretty optimistic direction as far as what exigency can set the stage for in terms of a financially troubled institution coming out of it. Chuck, anything you want to and add? Joe, I, I think the key learnings that really emanate from shared experience that Mike and I both valued as co-authored, if we were going to, to stand on the corner and kind of shout at the, the, the top of our lungs, don't wait too long, don't wait too long. In leadership experiences, the only power we really have to affect is truth. So communications and transparency, who we are, what we're doing and how we're doing are, are all important elements of truth that need to be front uh, and center within a, a campus culture. And then the power of data-informed decision-making, data-informed storytelling. Most people, if you equate, and let me just give you one quick example. If you have more students in collections than you've got enrolled, mm. that, that's a data point that perhaps uh, requires a degree of response. I think this book brings together those elements of transparency and culture, change-making, as you mentioned, and the power, right, of data to help inform. And the only thing I would underline is also find a really energized and incredibly talented co-author to write a book with, because it's it can be a fun process if you've got the right partnership. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been 
some insight into an incredible book that's going to be coming out very soon. Guys, how do we get it? Where do we go? We're talking Amazon. We need to go to the publisher. Where do we pick this up? You can do both. Roman Littlefield has a, a good site that's a good overview of the book and what some other people are saying about it. And then, of course, Amazon will give you three different options to engage with them. And I'm sure we can post a, a link on the podcast or give access yep. to that. So little known fact about book, book publishing. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but if you support the authors uh, who've put their time and energy and blood, sweat and tears into doing this, it's better to go direct to the publisher to buy the book. Amazon likes to take your money. They take like a big chunk of your money as a book author and keep it for themselves. So if you really do support the authors, go direct to the publisher and buy your copy. I think that you'll honor the authors in that way. I, I know this for a fact, because <laughs> I think I, I was like, oh, wow, I sold a bunch of books. And then $5 comes in and I go, who? Amazon has 50. Anyway, that's a little known fact. But if you support these guys, head to the publisher, buy a book. You won't be sorry that you did. And I judge higher ed books by not only diagnosing the problems, but providing solutions. This book does that. Ladies and gentlemen, my amazing guests, he co-hosted, but he's really a guest. Here they are. Doctors, Chuck Ambrose, Mike Nitzel, they are co-authors of the new book, Colleges on the Brink, The Case for Financial Exigency. Gentlemen, what an honor. Thank you for coming to EdUp to talk about your book. We just appreciate the work you've done as well. And not only identifying challenges, but giving solutions is what EdUp does. And it's been a privilege, Mike. Yeah, thank you so much, Joe. And a particular pleasure to be interviewed by somebody who's read the book. Very good. We appreciate it a great deal. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Oh, yeah. The Middle States Commission on Higher Education 2023 Annual Conference is in Philadelphia, December 4th through 6th. Setting the standard transformation through accreditation. Remember, only you can create transformation through networking, knowledge sharing, opportunity, leadership, service, learning, and accreditation. And you'll do all those things at the Middle States Commission on Higher Education Annual Conference this December, 4th through 6th. Can't wait to be there. EdUp will be there. There's going to be over 1,300 attendees, presidents, provosts. The networking opportunities are off the chain. Register now at msche.org. Oh, yeah. Attention, higher ed marketing and enrollment management professionals. We are taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us at Insights EDU on February 20th to 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Gain insight into the latest higher education trends and cutting edge marketing strategies that'll take your institution's enrollment to a whole new level. This is your opportunity to connect with higher education leaders and marketing experts from across the country. Comprehensive presentations, engaging panel discussions, and more. Insights EDU will equip you to position your institution for growth. Register now at insightsedu.com and use the code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Can you afford to miss this conference? I don't think so.